1689 Saturday. I hope you're having a good one. Stay with me. Well, Saturday afternoon for me, and I'm recording a 1689 Saturday that's... uh, Man, it feels like the stars have aligned. It's it's very unusual for that to actually happen, but it's pretty cool, I got to say. So if you listen carefully, you might listen to those classic Saturday afternoon um, sounds. Like I can hear right now that the lawn is being mowed and the dogs are barking. So hopefully that doesn't uh, distract too much, but um, it is Saturday after all and people are chilling. So that's cool. I'm, I've actually, I don't... Here's a bit of a throwback to uh, Smoking Saturdays as well. Uh, Something just arrived in the mail for me. Premium edition, Captain Black, Red Sky, pipe tobacco. Ooh, man, it is the best cherry tobacco out there. Um, It's been a while since I've had this stuff, and uh, it does not disappoint. Yep, that was the pop of a tin right there. And, um, oh man, good stuff. Anyway, so hey, it's me solo again. I thought, let me just round up on some thoughts uh, we've been talking a lot about pretty heavy philosophy and, uh, you know, some theologians and interwoven into all of that has been uh, this idea of perspectivalism and the Trinity. And the Trinity is, of course, at the back, the background of it all, the backbone of it all. Uh, there's no real point in, in making comments about um, perspectivalism if we haven't got a firm grasp on our doctrine of the Trinity. And so I thought being 1689 Saturday and all, and having a confession such as we do, uh, let me just dip briefly into the confession and uh, talk a little bit about the Trinity. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, Now, again, just nothing too heavy, uh, but maybe just something to get you psyched to worship our triune God um, today and tomorrow as we go to church and worship Him corporately. We've got a great, the 1689 is truly, uh, it's it's magnificent on the Trinity. Um, it actually, if I'm not mistaken, contains or combines uh, the Westminster and the Savoy. And I think it gives the most detailed um, statement on the Trinity, you know, more detailed than either of those confessions, which is, um, which is really, really cool. I mean, I remember thinking, uh, you know, I'd have to double check those facts, but I'm pretty sure that that is... Um, that is how it is, and um, and maybe that was actually because of the Baptist tendency to head towards Unitarianism, and that's a story on its own. We won't get there now, but let me quickly go ahead and read the actual confession to you. It says, three, person, three divine persons constitute the Godhead, the Father, the Son, or the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and they are one in substance, in power, and in eternity. Each is fully God, and yet the Godhead is one and indivisible. The Father owes his being to none. He is the Father to the Son, who is eternally begotten of him. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. These persons, one infinite and eternal God, not to be divided in being, are distinguished in Scripture by their personal nature or in their relations within the Godhead, and by the variety of works which they undertake. Their triunity, that is the doctrine of the Trinity, is the essential basis of our fellowship with God and of the comfort we derive from our dependence upon Him. So as I said, really, really very good uh, statement on the Trinity uh, there. Now, uh, 
Um, in terms of breaking this down, um, you could, I suppose, outline it this way. It talks about the, the unity of the um, Trinity um, and then the plurality. So you go from unity to pl pl plurality and just kind of see how that works together. And then the issue of relevance is what we just read at the end there. Um, so maybe just to kind of dip in. And what I'm kind of hoping to show you here is that in, in some ways, and I've always been struck by this, you know, people get scared from the doctrine of the Trinity as in, wow, it, it gets so technical and so deep and so, oof. And they feel, well, it can never be proven in Scripture or anything like that. Or just at least subliminally, that's how people think. And, and you need to be this mighty theologian to even find out where the Trinity is. The, you couldn't have anything further from the truth. The Trinity is really at some level, and I'm not saying that this is, just hear me out. It's a very, very easy doctrine to show in Scripture. Um, it's it's it sort of screams at you uh, if you just know what you're looking for, um, and that's not to say that we can then figure it out. And that's where the <laughs> that's where we do get rightly afraid of the Trinity and the the sense of awe should come over us because just because we can you know show it's there and the Bible is teaching it, it's it's like those issues like free will and um, God's sovereignty and you know that you just they're difficult and mysterious and you know i'm not going to try and deny that uh, but just remember that remember that you've got a very clear sort of idea of the trinity here's how it goes uh just reading that top part of the confession again three divine purpose uh, sorry start again three divine persons constitute the godhead the father the son uh and the holy spirit they are one in substance in power and in eternity each is fully God, and yet the Godhead is one and indivisible, right? So there it is, just in a nutshell. So you're looking for the oneness of God in the Old Testament, and of course, the Old Testament is filled with that. Um, not just the Old Testament, the whole Bible, but um, in the Old Testament, you have Yeh, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, the, the famous Shema. And then, you know, I'm not going to read them all now, but Isaiah 44, 6, 44, 8, um, Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. All those kinds of scriptures are just, you know, replete throughout the Old Testament. Uh, obviously, the New Testament is equally uh, clear. Uh, Jesus affirms uh, the Shema uh, in Mark 12, verse 29. You are Israel, the Lord our God is one again. Um, the epistles, 1 Timothy, for there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, there's 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 a Christology included there, but this basis of the oneness of God is affirmed. Um, the confession points us to 1 John uh, 5 verse 7, <laughs> which is a, a bit of a, you know, that's the Johannine comment that I was joking about with with Chris the other, other day. Um that's like not in the real Bible. So we kind of, a bit of a chuckle around that one. Um, but it, I think it sort of got grafted into the Textus Receptus or something along those lines in around 16th century. So it's a very nifty verse. It says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the, the Word, um, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. <laughs> so wouldn't it be lovely to have that text in your Bible? Um, unfortunately, that's not canonical. Uh, I don't think you can you can uh, have it. Um, you can, you can't lean on it as surely as you can lean on those passages that have been ascertained as canonical. So, um, but you know the good news is you don't really don't need that text to completely uh, affirm the reality of the Trinity. You just look out for those uh, verses. Firstly, that talk about one God. First Corinthians eight six, for example, is another one 
that the scripture, or at least that the confession points us to. Uh, yet for us, there is one God, Paul says, the Father, from whom are all things. Um, so there's no way to get around the very clear, perspicuous, you know, revelation of the Bible. Um, there is one God. Um, so we are monotheists, uh, together with Jews and um, Islam and that sort of thing. But of course, as I say that, we know we're very different as well and that we have the issue of plurality and distinction. And so I'll go ahead and read that part of the, the confession to you. Uh, the Father owes his being to none. He is Father to the Son who is eternally begotten of him. Uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. These persons, one infinite and eternal God, not to be divided in being, are distinguished in Scripture by their personal nature or in relations within the Godhead and by the variety of works which they undertake. So here's where you get to a slightly more complex language, uh, which I'll come back to in a second. But just basically, you've got the distinction element coming through now. And there again, even though this is truly developed uh, as it is in the in the New Testament, I mean, you, you see Elohim, for example, that's plural, which just says something about plurality within God. Um, you have uh, you know, Adonai um, used a whole bunch of times as well, also plural. Um, Ecclesiastes, remember also your uh, creator in the days of your youth, uh, before evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Um, there, the, the the idea is, you know, the, the word there is creators. It's um, it's plural. You know, just kind of weird things like that in the Old Testament. They don't, it might or might not refer to the Trinity, but it's just filled with plurality. And that's all I'm wanting to, to say now, things that you might just take for granted. Again, you know, I actually polled, for example, like Genesis 1.26 often is used to talk about the Trinity. And God said, let us make man in our image. I actually don't think that's talking about the Trinity. But I do think it is just, it's just sort of challenging the idea of pure, you know, there, there being no plurality within um, God's actions and um, and uh, so forth. So, you know, you that's all I'm wanting to call attention to. Thus says the Lord. And, and also I should say that many people do want to argue that there is a profound case to be made in those things alone for the Trinity. And um, they're worth hearing out, that's for sure. Um, but um, getting on to the New Testament, um, you see, obviously, the the impossibility of any modalism or anything with Matthew 3, 16, when Jesus was baptized. Uh, we know the Spirit was present, the Father spoke, Jesus was present. There were three persons. Um, so you can't just have Jesus being a version of God at a certain time and and um, and the Spirit being another version of God, you know, modes of God. Uh, rather, they are three persons all operating in the same time. Um, and, of course, you have Jesus who is, you know, himself claiming to be God, um, talking to God, his Father, um, you know, uh, maybe one of the classic texts there is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as, as we come to the cross? Um, so many texts like that. Again, it shouldn't be too hard to, to see the diversity issue. Um, you, uh, you can actually, what you could do is go through each, um, well, I suppose that would be the next step of the plan. You go, all right, well, just make sure that every one of the characters in the Trinity is claimed to be God. And that's what you can do. You can go to 
to, I mean, obviously it's easy to see the Father is God. Jesus, uh, his, uh, the proof that he is God is, I think, just all over the place. Um, and then the Spirit is God as well. Um, you have so many texts like that. Um, I don't know, Acts 5, 3 comes to mind, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And then later on in the verse, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. So you got stuff like that all over the place. I Again, I just don't think it's um, difficult to prove that. John 14, 16, I will ask the, the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So if you've proved Christ is God, then the Spirit, it follows, uh, is God as well. Um, and uh, honestly, just a lot, a lot of texts. And any you could actually probably just go through the proof text of the confession. To, to just run through those that they give and those are sufficient. And that's why if you have a Bible and you want to believe your Bible, you really have to believe in a Trinitarian God, okay? Because that's what, a very simple issue actually. Uh, God is revealed to be one and that one God is revealed in three persons. There it is. Um, now, saying that that's in the Bible and saying that it's uh, easy to prove is not saying that it's easy to understand. And this is where it does get, uh, as I said earlier, um, totally, totally difficult and yet profound at the same time. And here's where you do just have to start. I don't know. You just you want to steer clear of heresy. That's pretty much what you want to do. So you stay away, as we said, from modalism, you know, Jesus onlyism or anything like that, that just basically says that God, you know, it's a human explanation for the Trinity. You know, it's one God. It's just three different modes. Um and yet, you know, we can understand that. So, you know, something's gone astray. Arianism, of course, or subordinationism is going to be a problem in that uh, any attempt to go, well, there are three gods that are subordinated to one another and they're not actually one god. You know, it ends up in, in sort of polytheism and that sort of thing. Um, diagrams are often a problem. In fact, I think it's a fair statement to say that there is no diagram that can properly represent the Trinity. And if you keep that rule in mind, that will help you. Um you could be helped by the diagram. Just don't think it's the definitive diagram because that diagram doesn't exist. Any analogy is going to fail um, as helpful as it might be. Ice, water, steam. <laughs> and that's modalism, right? And yet you do get a helpful picture of three in one there. Um, the three-leaf clover, again, that's just not going to work. Uh, you, <laughs> you've got a whole lot of things that you could pull on, but um, you just got to be careful of heresy. So... Uh, it's mainly a matter of affirming mystery. Um, and yet, I think what the confession does do and the way it taps into church history uh, is to make sure that we're not left pulling the mystery card too early or making sure that we're understanding exactly where the mystery lies. Um, the, um, the confession is great like that. You note in the way that it articulates the personhood of the Trinity, really there is no explanation given. It's just an articulation. And, that, and that's a safe call right there. So it says, The Father owes His being to none. He is Father to the Son who is eternally begotten of Him. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's not explained. That's just articulated correctly. Uh, as Waldron said, um, I've got a quote here from his uh, great uh, exposition of the 1689. Uh, he says, um, As to their essence, the Son and the Spirit are equal in power and glory to the Father, but as to the persons, 
they are eternally generated and eternally proceed from the Father. Thus, as to their essence, they are self-existent, while as to their persons, they are eternally derived from the Father. Um, and so that's about the best we have. Um, you've got to distinguish between essence and personhood. Uh, there is no problem in saying what the Bible says about their personhood. Um, there is the Son who is begotten. That doesn't mean he was created. It has something to do with something of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, it's a state of preeminence. It's a, um, a re-imaging. It's a, I've heard so many uh, things to try and uh, talk about it. But essentially, uh, that idea of begottenness captures the relationship between Father and Son and um, and even uh, the, the, the Spirit um, being uh, proceeding from the Father and Son. Again, you have this relationship. It, just, it shows a willful submission in terms of personhood and yet a complete equality in terms of essence. And these are basically the things that we just have to make sure to affirm and kind of um, not not um, go against uh, in our conversations or thoughts in worship uh, according to the Trinity. Is it okay to worship Jesus? Well, you know, is Jesus God? Is it okay to worship the Spirit? Is the Spirit God? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we, we worship the tri- triune God. Um, uh, is it okay then to uh, think of the Spirit as pointing to Jesus uh, when the Spirit Himself is God, well, yes, because that's the Spirit's willing role in His personhood. Is it okay to think of Jesus as uh, subordinate to the Father, doing the will of the Father? Well, of course, that is the way it has been revealed to us, and um, and yet this compromises none of their equality. It just simply shows their relationship. Um, there is. Um, Man, there's a much. I actually plan on sort of going into a little bit of John Edwards, but I'm, this is getting long. Um, the there are many amazing ways that theologians have tried to break this down. Um, one thing we do have to say though is that there needs to be this understanding of plurality um, and and their relationship to one another. Um, otherwise, you end up losing the doctrine of the Trinity itself. You end up just sort of turning the Father into the Son and the Son into the Father. And and uh, there's a lot of talk today of ontological and economic trinity and that sort of thing, uh, which we perhaps will save for another uh, another uh, episode. But, you know, essentially, um, let me just see if I can quickly find it while I'm speaking here. Uh, Waldron says this, Without this doctrine, terminology like the first, second, and third in the trinity become illegitimate. We're left with three colorless, unvarying, indistinguishable persons, uh, of the Trinity. This result smells of the barrenness of human philosophy, not the riches of biblical revelation. Um, and so we need to we need to make sure to keep those um, those ideas in place, even if we don't understand them. Um, and uh, really the guarantee is that we won't. Um, people, you know, as soon as people bring up ontological and economic subordination, just be weary that it's just trying to solve, in some sense, an unsolvable problem. And the confession has been content to leave it at one in essence, three in persons. Um, we don't know anything about God other than that which he has revealed to us. Um, and so to sort of come up with an understanding of God that is different to that which he has revealed 
is very, very dangerous. And yet we know that if we say that, you know, Jesus is, you know, uh, obedient or submissive or subordinate to the Father in any way that means he's not God, we've gone in another direction that's wrong. And so, again, it's it's usually a matter of just not skirting over those edges and affirming that which has been revealed and uh, and, and therefore staying safe um, as we worship, as we talk about the Trinity. Um Here's one from Gill. He says, if one of these distinct persons is a father in the divine nature and another a son in the divine nature, there must be something in the divine nature which is the ground of the relation and distinguishes the one from the other and can be nothing else, biblically speaking, than generation. From generation arises the relation and from the relation, distinct personality. Um, and so I, you know, I think that's good. And so, again, we might circle back and cover that some more and show its relevance. Maybe you lost it to, as to why that even matters. But um, there it is for now. Um, then you have the issue of its relevance, finally, in the confession. The triunity, that is the doctrine of the Trinity, is the essential basis of all our fellowship with God and of the comfort we derive from our dependence upon Him. What's crazy is that you can't really have a God of love if you don't have Trinity. You need an object to love Vantel. I've just been reading a, a lot of his uh, stuff. He, he's big on this. There's no object of love. Therefore, you can't have love. Therefore, God needs something to have love. And of course, then you diminish the doctrine of aseity and self-sufficiency and all those things. Uh, the Trinity means that God didn't need anything else. Didn't need us for to be a God of love, uh, to experience love in its fullness. Um, all the fellowship that we're called into has existed in God who is uh, of himself and needs no one outside of himself. And and so this becomes the essential basis for all of our fellowship from God, with God, and, and um, what we derive in our dependence on him. Um, we love because God is a God of love. We have community because God is in community. If God lacked these things, we would not be able to enter in or depend on him for these things. Uh, we worship because that of the inter-Trinitarian worship. Uh, that's a crazy point right there. That's Jonathan Edwards beholding and reflecting the glory of God. Uh, that's our, that's our, that's what we talk about. In fact, GraceNet has that as a banner. That's our worship definition. And yet that has taken place in eternity between Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, we're just doing what, you know, is already experienced within the Godhead. It's, it's an amazing thing. So immediately you've got things like um, Islam and any monotheistic religion that really just can't properly speak of love or even a God who is, uh, perhaps they speak of a God of love, but he cannot be a God who is of himself because he needs something to make that that love exist uh, or, or to make or to experience the truth of that love. Um, should I quote one more thing or not? Let's see what I got here. Uh, let's do one more of Gill. I like this one. This is amazing. This is why Gill and Edwards um, are good conversation partners. Listen to this. Gill says, The Father loves the Spirit, being the very breath of Him, from whence He has His name and proceeding from Him and possessing the same nature and essence with Him. The Son loves the Father, of whom He is begotten, with whom he was brought up, in whose bosom he lay for all eternity as his own and only begotten Son. And as man, the law of God was in his heart, the sum of which is to love the Lord God with all 
the heart and soul. And as mediator, he showed his love to him by an obedience to his commandment, even though that was to suffer death for his people. The Son also loves the Spirit, since he proceeds from him as from the Father, and he's called the Spirit of the Son. And Christ often speaks of him with pleasure and delight. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and sheds abroad the love of them both in the hearts of his peoples. He searches into the deep things of God and reveals them to them, and takes of the things of Christ and shows them unto them, and so is the comforter of them and the glorifier of them. And he goes on and on in this way. It's really amazing. You know, Gil did um, more work on the Trinity and the Pactum Salutis than I think any of the covenant theologians alive. And he doesn't get the credit for that, but uh, his his he he defended the Trinity against Unitarianism of his day. And when he talks about it, it's like his writing just lights up. It turns into this form of poetry. It's really beautiful. So I could really recommend uh, if you want to get stuck in to the doctrine of the Trinity, just uh, you get into it pretty quickly if you get his systematic theology, which is online, body of doctrinal and practical divinity. Usually you can get that for free um, and just jump in and start reading and go slow. And it's amazing. I mean, you'll be worshiping real soon. There we go. I've left everything out, but hopefully that's something just to get your heart warm for tomorrow. And uh, if you are listening to this on a Saturday and perhaps even a Saturday evening, bless you. Have a great day of worship with the church tomorrow. Looking forward to catching up on Monday. Mm-hmm.